You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome and welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Mark Resimczynski and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, where... Each week, we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, for those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended to give you as much of the nurture and encouragement as the turtles got back in the 1980s, as Jerry likes to put it. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to learn more by diving into the back catalog and listen to all the past episodes that you may have missed. Like last week's episode with Jerry where we, among many things, discuss a different aspect of ESG when it comes to trend-following firms and how some of the recent developments in terms of new markets could cause an issue from an ESG perspective. Um, Quite an interesting conversation, I thought. Mark, always fantastic to be uh, with you. How are you doing? How are things where you are in the Northeast? It's hot and humid, and uh, so we're in the supposedly the doldrums of, uh, of summer, but I was actually looking at some numbers, and it said that August is actually can be a, a, a volatile month in markets, so uh, so it's hot, humid, and potentially volatile. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a dangerous cocktail. Now, I should say for all of you listening that Mark and I are recording a day early, Friday evening, European time. As I have uh, a lot of traveling to do over the weekend, so we had to move it a day forward to uh, make sure we got our recording done. So all the data we're going to speak about, just so you know, is as of close of business Thursday. Of course, we're paying attention to what's happening in the market today, but I don't think it's going to change anything of what we have to update you on. And we've got a great lineup of topics, mostly brought by Mark this week. And I really look forward to diving into them. But of course, as I have done in the last few weeks, before we dive into that, I just want to quickly acknowledge and give a shout out to those of you who left the rating and review, at least the ones I managed to um, to see. I so much appreciate you taking time to do it. And uh, I really enjoyed the review from MJ in the UK and also Trend Trading Texan from the US. But of course, my sincere thanks goes to all of you who took time out of your schedule to help us grow the podcast. Now, it has been another summer holiday week, so to speak. At least that's how it feels to me. It's been kind of a risk-off environment in general. The VIX is down more than 10% for the week as we speak. Also, lumber is continuing its slide back to levels we haven't seen since October of last year before the big surge in its price. Softs like sugar and coffee and also wheat have been moving higher this week by 6, 7, 8% or so. And wheat and sugar, in fact, are making some new highs for quite some time. Another sign that it's uh, kind of a risk-off environment, perhaps, is that the S&P's last 5% drop is now more than 190 days ago. It's about two times the average time between a 5% pullback, despite the market, actually, uh, the rally we've seen in the S&P is the sharpest of any streak greater than 150 days, 
with an annualized return of more than 70%. And um, uh, in fact, even though it feels like a long time, it's actually only the 15th longest streak relative uh, in the last 100 years. The previous streak like this was much longer, or the longest was 404 trading days, and that ended in February of 2018. We all know what happened after that. And if the current streak was to extend for 404 days or trading days, it's going to take us all the way into July of 2022. With those words, Mark, I want to bring you in, see uh, what's caught your attention from a kind of a big picture point of view uh, since we last spoke about a month ago from either market perspective, trend following perspective, anything really? Well, I think we're coming into uh, a dangerous period as we've talked about last month, we were at peak reflation uh, last month. And, uh, you know, now we're going to say it's hard for a lot of the market to sort of say, what are we going to do next? We had a lot of earnings reports this month. All the earnings reports were extremely positive, beat a lot of uh, expectations from analysts. But now we're going into the third quarter. We're going. Uh, we're having an increase in uh, the Delta COVID cases, and I think that that's just adding a lot to the uh, uncertainty that we're going to see in the markets. And then we have the continued talk about uh, talk of tapering, <laughs> when and if. And uh, while it's hard to sort of say exactly what will be the impact of the market from a portfolio balancing perspective, it's an important signaling mechanism to the rest of the market and what are the intentions of the Fed as a liquidity provider. So that's going to also become forefront as we move to Jackson Hole in the next uh, two weeks. And then uh, we move into the fall when we have the FOMC committee meetings. Yeah, from memory, I certainly remember that uh, Jackson Hole has been a time where there's been a little bit of a fallout from whatever that came from that part of the world and their meetings. So it will be definitely an interesting time to uh, to follow. In terms of performance update, the first four trading days of this week on our side are done. It's been pretty good, a positive month, a positive week, positive month so far for August. It's driven by the usual suspects, kind of equities, softs and grange, pretty much what I mentioned in the beginning of uh, our conversation that's been moving this week in terms of my own trend barometer. It's actually finished last night at a reading of 41, which is kind of weak, even though it's still in the neutral zone. But at least performance uh, for the industry seems to be uh, holding up for now. In terms of volatility and our strategy on that, I mean, volatility, as I mentioned, has been pushed down again. And that's been pretty good for our strategy. It's up for the week, up for the month. But other than this, uh, you know, these stats on on this unusual streak with no 5% S&P sell-offs, I really don't have much great insight for this this week. In terms of my own trend-following portfolio performance, uh, where I can go into more detail, it's also been a positive week and it leaves the portfolio up 0.92% for the month and 12.68% for the year. Performance so far for the month, Group 1 models, classical trend, up 1.34%. Group 2, long biased models, up half a percent. And Group 3, fast reacting, they are down just shy of 1%. In terms of sector attributions this month, 
really it uh, is just equity, softs and precious metals that are doing well. And the worst sector so far is space metals, bonds and currencies. Single markets, I really don't think that's changed since last week. Australian SPY, Swiss Market Index, and NASDAQ making up the top three spots. And at the bottom, we find the US 10-year notes, lead and copper. In terms of the trading activity this week, the week started off with a strategy selling a little bit of gold and getting out of some long US 10-year note position. Tuesday, the program bought uh, some sugar. And then on Wednesday, it got long. Quite a few DAX models got uh, triggered on, on Wednesday. And it also reversed a yen position from uh, long to short. And then yesterday, which was Thursday, it bought a little bit of wheat. And uh, in terms of the risk to stop, uh, the riskiness of the portfolio, if all got, everything got stopped out today, it uh, would lose 13.63%, which is up from 11.16% last week. That's about it in terms of the trading update. So... Um, I think we're just going to jump into uh, a lot of the topics that you've brought, Mark, and I'm very excited to go into these. So why don't we start? I think the first one you mentioned was really kind of, uh, you labeled it the black hole of Jackson Hole. So uh, so where, where are we going with this? Before we go down the black hole, I, I think okay. we first have to, there's a cele- 50th year celebration that is happening on Sunday, August 15th. So, Neil, I I mentioned it before, but I'll let you sort of, you know, give your listeners the surprise of what is the 50th anniversary uh, on the 15th of August. Yeah, it's the, uh, I think it's the Fed Fed Accord, isn't it? No, 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 we got to go. We're going a little bit, uh, a little bit further. Oh, the gold standard. This is the uh, the closing of the gold window by Richard Nixon in uh, 1971. And this is, uh, this actually sort of ended Brenton Woods. So we moved off of, uh, you know, gold fixed exchange rate against a dollar, and then we allowed exchange rates then to float. So so we uh, we had the big Brenton Woods conference, which is yeah, about two hours away from where I live up in New Hampshire in 1944 that sort of set up the monetary regime in the post-World War II. It fell apart on on uh, fifty years ago t- today with a speech by Richard Nixon, and uh, I think that this is fairly monumental, you know, both in the positive and in the negative. So we'll say first the positive: we basically changed the uh, monetary system of the world, and yet we all survived. So so no matter what you know, when people. Th- often talk about like the end of the world is coming uh, when they hear some market event. And in reality is, is that markets do adapt, they do adjust, and they sort of uh, you know change to the situation and the environment that they face. On the negative side is, is that uh, we've now had almost a continual debasement of currencies in the value of the dollar for 50 years. We're seeing it now is is that with the no controls over fiat money is is that we have obviously negative interest rates for trillions of dollars around the world. We have interest rates at zero in the United States. So the end of the Bretton Woods, albeit a flawed system, has led to a completely different environment where the purchasing power of all consumers and all wealth holders has been diminished significantly. And that means is that trying to be a passive investor is very difficult 
for the simple reason is 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 that there can constantly be debasement of your of your wealth. And I think that if it wasn't for the end of Brenton Woods, then the IMM of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange wouldn't start. We wouldn't have currency futures trading. And that probably really led to the development also of financial futures uh, across bonds, because obviously this is that if expected inflation starts to change or, or there's more rapid changes in expected inflation, well, then there's going to have to be risk that's going to have to be hedged, and which led to the, the probably development of bond futures and such. So we'll sort of say that the ascent of trading markets beyond the agricultural markets really started with the destruction of Brenton Woods based on that 50th uh, anniversary. Now, you can actually go on YouTube, you can listen to Richard Nixon, his speech and telling us that no, this was not going to harm consumers, that this is actually good for them. And and I think it it may have been his the best logic at the time, but but if you listen to his talk about how that this is this is actually great for Americans, this is great for the world, and it's not going to harm anyone, is that fifty years later we know different. Well, I mean, there's so many of these uh, policies, and obviously you're talking about something that happened fifty years ago. But if you just look at some of the new policies that we've seen in the last ten, fifteen years since the global financial crises where we've been kind of given one narrative in terms of what it should do and how it should help, et cetera, et cetera. And frankly, the uh, effect of it or the result of it has, in many cases, been the complete opposite. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that it's been diff- it's made it more difficult to be a passive investor, but I wonder if you could argue the exact opposite and say, well, actually, it looks to me that it's been incredibly easy to be a passive investor because going on what I started out talking about, I mean, the S&P hasn't had a 5% drawdown for almost 200 trading days, and it just seems like it's on this relentless move upwards. And as we've talked about when we talk about kind of the 60-40 portfolio, how well it's done with perfect anti-correlation between equities and bonds and so on and so forth. So I wonder if you could say, well, actually passive investors have, you know, let's forget about whether they've lost purchasing power, but in terms of, of making investments, it seems like it's been pretty easy. And I wonder if we are coming kind of to the end of the road of, of, of things being, being easy. Well, you know, I've talked a little bit about the whole idea of what we call counterfactuals and scenario analysis. And one of the ideas about you know, counterfactuals, you could say, like, what would have history been like if something existed or didn't exist? So what would the world be like if, if let's say, a certain dictator didn't exist? Would the world have changed? So historians now play the scenarios of the counterfactuals uh, history. So... Let's go back to 1970 and let's assume that we had a lot of ETFs available in the marketplace and uh, like we have today. And you probably would have a lot of people arguing that, well, we ended, we were in the go-go 60s for equities. Uh, We should be passive investors. You should hold a portfolio of equities and bonds in some proportion, probably it'd be 60-40. And then we have the end of Brenton Woods, so we closed the gold window, all those passive investors would have had a, you know, horrible losses, both in the stock market in the 70s and bond markets. 
your opportunity to start to gain in a 60-40 portfolio wouldn't start to exist until, you know, let's say 10 years later in the uh, beginning of the Ronald Reagan period. So in some senses that there can be these very long-term trends or regimes that could be devastating for people's wealth. And then we'll sort of say that the post-81 period with Paul Volcker and uh, Ronald Reagan is, is that that broke our stagflation environment, albeit there are other issues that we had to face. But then we're, we've been on a, on a long bond rally that's been lasting for, for almost till today. Now what we're, we're doing again is, is that we're trying to change regimes. Uh, we could sort of say that the uh, thinking about monetary policy is a change in re- regime currently, because I think that Monetary policy is used to sort of help finance deficits. And given that new environment, we could be in a period where being a passive investor is not the best strategy, that following maybe the trends, which may be that the trend for equities is good right now, that may change in the long run in in six months or a year from now. Yeah, no, uh, completely. I mean, um, personally, I feel that there is there will there will be change, but of course, it doesn't affect how we 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 trade or how we look at things. I just think that that at some point we're going to get to to a stage where whether it's loss of confidence in in what they're doing. I mean, the thing is, I don't know that when the central bank started to lower interest rates and really brought them down to zero, whether they believed that that's not going to lead to a lot of people taking on a lot of debt. And if it was also to reignite the economy and actually also if they've stayed in the last few years, they wanted to increase the level of inflation in, in the economy. Of course, the the result has been the complete opposite because people have taken on so much debt. And and I think most com- a lot of commentators now agree that this accumulation of debt is actually deflationary in its nature. Right. And I know I'm I'm jumping in the in the topics uh, a little bit but it does remind me of a, of a conversation I heard this week on Grant Williams uh, podcast a great one where they were talking about uh liquidity and the unintended consequences of that and they had Michael Howell from Crossborder Capital on the show talking about these things and um and we, we, I mean, including myself, who definitely not an expert in in global liquidity and liquidity flows and capital flows and all of that stuff, but it looks to 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 most people, it looks like there's a lot of liquidity in the system right now. We know that that is partly why we also see asset price inflation. But what he was talking about was that, well, hang on, most of the liquidity that's in the system is not new liquidity; it's just liquidity to refinance all the debt. That we've accumulated. So what what he was looking for was really trying to see what are the changes that are taking place in terms of capital flows and liquidity, and are there any clues that we've seen in terms of previous crises? Because often and I've heard that from other people that often if you dig deep enough and you look at capital flows, often they will kind of be a little bit ahead of the game in terms of of a, of a big global crisis. So that's what the conversation was about. I'm not going to steal their thunder. People should listen to it themselves. But, but it's a very interesting conversation because, and I think you made the point 
before we pressed record today that, and, and feel free to go into that, that there are obviously different kinds of liquidity. People, we, we use the term liquidity a lot and it's often misunderstood, but it's incredibly important to understand what is meant by the word liquidity or the term liquidity when it's used. Right. And I think that this start out as an overarching theme, and I think that it's probably uh, obvious for those who have listened to me in the past, is, is that, that I be, I'm a trend follower in prices, but I'm also a trend follower in fundamentals. And a trend follower in in you know what is what is liquidity trend following and what is economic data, and that in some senses is that fundamental trends will drive price trends. You could sometimes avoid looking at the fundamental trends, and price may be enough. But uh, you know I'm of the view that looking at what is happening on fundamental trends is an enhancer on being able to either help explain or to provide some more context for what is happening in price trends. So that being said, is, is that let's look at the, the liquidity issue. And we could talk about you know, Jackson Hole as a black hole in just a second. <laughs> but we'll probably say that most central bankers have had a uh, ultimately a very simplistic view on monetary policy, that if they create more money, if they do more QE, that then it will have all of these great effects. One is, is that, well, if we if we increase uh, the money supply, we'll drive down interest rates. That's going to mean that more businesses are going to invest. That means that more people could be able to, you know, refinance their debt. That means is that this, that we could have in a, a more purchase of goods and services that will lead to a more robust economy. We're simplifying again, but we're finding out is is, is that uh, we weren't really clear on what were the impact of all those QE that we've had. And I think that this is where we sort of talk about liquidity issues. Is is that do we have too much or too little liquidity? In some senses is that if you have a lot of liquidity, but then you have a global economies on lockdown, what are they going to do? What are consumers going to do with their excess money balances? Lo and behold, they're going to buy financial assets. So, so if mm. you have excess money and you can't buy goods to relieve your excess money balances, well, then what you're going to do is go buy financial assets. And what does that do? Well, what's going to have is, is it's going to lead to bubbles in, in equity markets. And then what you're going to find too is, is that if you can't buy any goods, well, what we're seeing is the households have actually done a really good job of retrenching over the last 10 years, okay? But at the same time, as is that corporations sort of say, if I have cheap money, I can be able to refinance all of my debt. But that doesn't mean I'm going to invest in new projects. And what we're seeing is that, for example, stock buybacks this year is at on a record pace. So we might have all-time stock buybacks. What corporations are telling us when they do more buybacks is I have excess money. I have excess funds that I don't know what to invest in and I don't have any positive net present value projects. So therefore I might as well just buy my stock back to boost that, that the price up for uh, for my shareholders. And in a sense, no different than a dividend. A buyback is basically giving money back to shareholders. So there are other 
impacts is great for the executives because price of the stock goes up and they, and they can be able to get more uh, compensation. But ultimately, what happens is that you're sending money back to, to shareholders. And what do these shareholders do? They don't know what to do with it. So they'll go buy more stocks, uh, some of them more risky. So think that what, what happens now is, is, is that even when you look at the current situation, if you look at, uh, first look at money velocity, Okay, so money velocity is the amount of turns that money makes. Okay, and we thought that is if money velocity stays the same and I increase the amount of money in the system or the amount of liquidity, then what I'm going to see is that I'm going to have an increase in, in growth, right? What we've actually seen is, is that velocity has fallen off a cliff over the last year. It's it's starting to stabilize now, but for, for generally is, is that, that there haven't been more turns in the amount of money that we have. Money velocity has gone down, which tells us is that the impact of the money that's been put in the system has not been as strong in leading to GDP, okay? If you actually look at CNI loans, if you look at the trend in lending, even though we have all of this new money in, in the system, if you look at the amount of lending that banks make, it actually has been diminished over the last year. It's starting to improve a little bit because I'll sort of say senior bank loan officers have said that they're, they're now loosening their standards. But generally, is this is that you can give money to banks uh, by increasing their reserves through quantitative easing, but that doesn't mean that more lending is going to occur. That banks are going to take that money and then lend it to people so that they could invest in new uh, new projects. And in some sense, as a as an old banker, I'd sort of say, when you look at the spread that you make on a loan, is that you got to have a lot of good loans to make up for one bad loan. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so if I lose money on one loan, okay, and I'm only making maybe a, you know, 100, 200 basis points in spread on, on my good loans, I'm gonna have to make up a lot. Of, <laughs> I'm gonna have to make a lot of those good loans or make sure I have very few bad loans if I wanna try to turn a profit. But the whole issue of liquidity is that we really don't know what the impact would be. And sometimes it's hard for us to see where that liquidity flows go. So liquidity is created, you know, through QE. Is it going into the financial markets? Is it going in a goods market? Is it going overseas? Where is it held? Who holds it? These are all important questions that sometimes it's hard for us to get a good answer. Yeah, I was just going to say, and one of the things that um, Michael Hull talked about on, on this podcast, but also the changes of the players when we talk about global liquidity, in the old days, so to speak, obviously the U.S. was very dominant and China played a very small role. But in today's world, China is pretty close to the size of uh, the U.S. in terms of liquidity, quote-unquote, provider. However, uh, when we talk about Chinese liquidity, it actually often stays within the Chinese economy. So it's not you can't really treat it the same. But, um, I mean, it's, an, it's interesting. I think most of our listeners will probably think about liquidity as, okay, can I execute my trades as well as I could uh, last week or last month or last year? And, of course, w one of the arguments that I certainly make when people talk about, um, when, you know, if they're newer to to um, futures as, as, a, as an instrument, which, of course, we trade, 
you know, Futures, I think, has done a really good job in remaining liquid, quote-unquote liquid, through a lot of these crises. Even currency markets, which are called the most liquid markets in the world, they certainly froze up last year and, 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 and have done uh, during other crises. And even bonds, we know that for sure. Last year, they froze up when there were a lot of selling back from the uh, from foreigners in the U.S. bond market. And um, also 2018, uh, Q4, I think certainly it was the bond markets that probably triggered the Powell pivot, so to speak, where he changed his opinion. Not so much the fact that the equities were down 18, 20% from, the, from its high. So liquidity is an interesting thing. But I think the good thing is that we operate in markets that generally can be seen as, as pretty liquid. Of course, we know that some of the commodity markets we trade are less liquid, but we know that in advance. So we take that into account. Well, liquidity is very fickle because yeah. you never have it when you need it, right. is the old adage. And so if you measure liquidity by the bid-ask spread, bid-ask spreads are fairly tight. Okay, so most of the time this is a crisis, bid-ask spreads widen, but you know the bid-ask spread is tight, but then there's often times because of electronic trading is, is that you think that there's more depth in the market, so there's more orders behind the, the uh, current bid and offer. But in reality is that those orders are often pulled so that, that you could have these pockets of illiquidity. And so mm-hmm. for large institutions, they have to adjust. And so they have to break down their orders and they have to sort because they can't do large orders. And so what, what you have is, is is that you have a lot of volume being traded, but that doesn't mean that you have the same liquidity at any given point in time if you had to execute a large transaction and at at close to what is considered fair value. Right, right. So so let me ask you just out of curiosity, I mean, how would you measure a market's true liquidity? I think that there are multiple measures that you can use. So, so for example, you want to look at market depth, you want to look at the bid-ask spread, you want to look at how much for a given size of transactions, what's the amount of movement occurs, uh, how much intraday volatility occurs, especially on non-announcement days. So there are a number of ways in which you could be able to measure or look at liquidity, but there's no perfect way to be able to do this. And we also know is is that ultimately is is that I could measure liquidity, t- or, you know, right now, and mm. I could say it looks pretty liquid. I could have some announcement that comes out, and all of a sudden this is that that liquidity will be uh, significantly different. And one of the big issues I think, especially for the Treasury market, U.S. Treasury market, is the fact that you have this. 800-pound gorilla, which is the Fed, which is you know right. is is driving all of a lot of the flows that we see in the Treasury market. Second of all, is is, is that the primary dealers are probably less important than they were 20 years ago in terms of being able to make markets in treasuries. So it used to be the uh, the primary dealers had a responsibility to make bids and offers on all treasuries as part of being a, a dealer. Uh, 
interesting. We did an analysis, and I was an econ- uh, economist uh, who did some work for the uh, for the government, looking at uh, primary government security dealers and the criteria for being a dealer. And one was that you had to be a a market maker in all in all mar- markets, and you had to be able to provide liquidity. I think the liquidity has moved to uh, we'll call it uh, non-primary dealers, non-bank dealers. Bank dealers are capital constrained. And if you look at the capital, it's available for market making in treasuries relative to the amount of debt outstanding. It's it's out of whack relative to what we've seen in the, in the past. So what you want to say is, is that what's your ability to make markets should be the amount of capital that could be committed to take on you know, one side of a trade or another when people want immediacy. So let's say I'm a non-dealer and I want to trade a couple hundred million dollars worth of, of bonds. The question comes in is, is, is that is there enough capital that could be able to take those bonds in to, uh, at this moment by quoting you a price, hold them and warehouse them for some period of time. It could be as, uh, could five minutes, 10 minutes, it could be a day. And then they could be able to then get paid for then uh, then dispersing those bonds out in the market over time. In some sense, if there are a limited amount of capital for dealers relative to the size of the debt markets, then if everybody wants to be a seller, there won't be enough capital available for the buyers to be able to provide that immediacy. And that's where the real problem comes in. It can even be uh, you know, what you find out is, is, is that in commodities markets, if you have a limited number of large players on one side of the market and there's not enough capital or market makers on the other side, used to be floor traders, well, then their ability to make markets and be able to maintain or provide liquidity is going to be restricted. And so what we see is is as, as more of trading is held in fewer hands, you're going to have a situation that there's more likely to be one-sided markets. A perfect example could be is is that if you only have three or four top dealers in FX, if all of them have the house view that the dollar should go down and then someone wants to sell dollars, they're probably not going to put a lot of their capital (laughs) up to make trades on the other side. They'll make markets, but you know that they're not going to be strong in terms of providing that liquidity when needed. So there's structural issues that limit liquidity at any given point in time. And those structural issues is the amount of capital, who are the players, what are their responsibilities, how concentrated the market is. So this is a large industrial organization problem that I think that a number of people have been discussing but there has not been good uh, solutions to say how do we how do we deal with this? And when I say solutions how can you solve a problem when the size of the debt market is growing larger and larger? You could sort of say, we don't have enough capital to make markets on the other side. But, and you could sort of say, well, we could change capital requirements. We could try to see if uh, new entrants could come into market because they make some profits. But ultimately, you don't have, you haven't sort of gone to the root cause, which is the fact that we're having larger and larger debt issuances by the governments that will have to be bought and sold at some point. Speaking of those governments, um, we started off with a with a topic called the whole of Jackson Hole. Uh, is, do you want to uh, 
elaborate on that particular well, line? Or I know that everyone has, has been, uh, or at least it, it has been for a good part of the summer that everyone said to like, well, we're waiting for Jackson Hole because then somehow we'll have these insights from the central bankers that'll tell us what the direction of monetary policy will be. And and I think that if if anything is, is that there's been too much emphasis on these single events as if somehow they're all going to get together in, in, at the base of the mountain at the lodge and be able to sort of first get some agreement and second articulate that to, to the public and that, that somehow tapering will be revealed so that the hope is, is that there is going to be information revealed when in reality is, is, is that it probably won't occur. And so, so we're going to have to wait some more to get solutions to this. And so I think that it's a, it's something that too much emphasis has been placed on this as an event that's going to be meaningful when central bankers generally have not really done a good job of signaling. So one of the key emphasis of central banks in the post great financial crisis period said that we're going to provide more forward guidance and under the idea that provide by providing forward guidance then we're going to tip off the markets and what we're going to do so we can be able to smooth any uh, any disruptions and in reality is is that we've had even this last week a number of fed presidents all make announcements that they're a little bit more hawkish but in reality is is, is that they they said, well, I think we should be really talking more about tapering this fall because, and uh, that discussion should really occur this fall. And some people say, well, I think we should really taper. But no one's sort of saying, well, this is what our policy should be and this is how we should uh, should act. And this gets, uh, this can all get tied back to our how we process information, what information we have available. And this is one of the key reasons for why trend following is successful and why people want to be trend followers. And uh, I think that's sometimes, you know, we get into these, you know, longer term discussions about what's the value of trend following as opposed to here's a certain signal or here's a certain approach to trend following. I think it's good to always take the high level, take a step back. And with that respect, I could say, say that we had a big event in June some may not think it's a big event, but Donald Rumsfeld, who is the former U.S. Defense Secretary, died. So some people hate Donald Rumsfeld, given you know all the things that happened in the Middle East. Others just found him uh, sort of arrogant, irascible. But for those who follow risk and uncertainty, he will always be known as the unknown knowns guy. So and if I, if you remember correctly, he was the person who said there are known knowns. There are things we know that we know. There are known unknowns. That is to say that there are things that we know we don't know, but there are also unknown unknowns. And those are things we don't know we don't know. Those tend to be difficult ones. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, the first time you read that or you hear that, you sort of say, I have no idea what that means. But the more you right. think about it, it, it becomes very important and the reason why it becomes important, because this is the reason why I think that there's a validity for using trend following as an important approach. And and when you break down the knowns and unknowns and what we can know and not know, 
I tie this, uh, you know, systems trading with two other pieces of or quotes that I heard this week that also resonate with me. And one is from the that uh, philosopher boxer Mike Tyson, and and, yeah. and I don't know if you remember that. Mike Tyson was the one that said that everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> so right, yeah. some would sort of say, well, then that you shouldn't have a plan. If anything, I could say that because of Mike Tyson, you say, this is the reason why you want to be a systematic, disciplined trader, or at the very least, follow rules, because you're going to get punched in the face by the markets. And the question, and that's when everyone forgets their plan. And this is all the more reason why you have to be disciplined. And the, and the other quote that I came across was this, is that uh, Warren Buffett said, uh, diversification is for ignorance. And basically the argument was say like, well, if, if you know a lot about something, you don't need to diversify. If you really know your stocks and if you know your companies, you can be able to have a very concentrated basket of stocks. You don't need to diversify if you have great knowledge. So let's tie all these together. We've got Warren Buffett who says diversification is about ignorance. And so then you say like, well, I don't want to be ignorant, so I, I, I got to get more knowledge. You got Donald Rumsfeld that's saying this is that, well, there are unknown unknowns, and then there are things we'll never know. And we got Mike Tyson who says, we got to have a plan. And you sort of say that, well, what is trend following all about is this one is trying to solve the problem of unknowns in the Donald Rumsfeld sense. It's yeah. having a plan when you get punched in the face. And given that we accept our level of ignorance, we want to have diversification. And going about this a little bit deeper is this is that uh, you say, well, let's say, think about how do you solve ignorance? One is, is that you go out there and you learn more. You say, I get more facts. Okay. And you could sort of say that there's ignorance because you don't know, and there's ignorance because you didn't learn. But the problem comes in is that no matter how much we learn, we're, there's still going to be things we don't know. So it's hard to solve that. To be, uh, but you could sort of say you can work on that. But the problem comes in is is that if you want to trade fifty markets or if you want to try trade five hundred stocks, are you going to be able to know about the markets for all five hundred? Or if you're tra trading a global macro portfolio of fifty stock uh, futures around the world in currencies and commodities and rates and equity indices, are you going to know everything you need to know about those markets? And the answer is probably not. You know, in fact, I'll say I'll guarantee you can't know everything. Uh, there always will be someone smarter about that. But you could try. The fundamentalists will sort of say, well, we can try to get to know these facts and try to be able to get an edge. Alternatively, and we'll talk a little bit more about this as trend following, but a trend follower will say, no, uh, I don't think I can get the edge. So maybe I better just try to follow the prices as an alternative. The second is, is is that let's say let's say that you are a really smart guy and you get all these facts. The problem is 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 that uh, on the Rumsfeld known unknowns, I don't know what is the common knowledge that everybody else has. Mm -hmm. So let's say I know what I know, but do I know what everybody else knows? That's the common knowledge. So I could say I think I know you know everything about a given market might be presumptuous, but you never know 
what the rest of the market knows. So you can never put that to the real test. Sure. And then the third issue is, is, is that even if you sort of said, I know everything I know about, uh, I should about markets. I know the common knowledge that everybody else knows. Do I know how people will behave if a new piece of information comes out, which is another known unknown or an unknown unknown? Because I don't know behavior, even if I know what their common knowledge is and I know what my knowledge is, I don't know what the reaction will be to a given piece of information. So I sort of play the thought experiment. And I think you've seen this in all the sci, you know sci-fi you know thrillers or novels. Let's assume that you're able to get a newspaper from ten years into the future, and it tells you is is that here's what the stock market is, or even if it just said like Richard Nixon just declared the Bretton Woods done, gold closed. If you had that information, but you didn't know what the actual market did, you just had the facts, mm. but you didn't have what the reaction of the market would be, you could still lose money. You could still go bankrupt, even though you had perfect foresight of what the market was doing. And a perfect example would be is, is that, let's assume that two days beforehand, I told you exactly what the CPI was going to be on Wednesday. Could you guarantee that you would be able to make money given that information? I'm not going to tell you what the market did. I'm just going to tell you the CPI. So this is it. It's likely that in some sense you would still lose money even though you had perfect knowledge about specific information. Another example, I could say, I could say, I could give you perfect knowledge what Chairman Powell says at the Jackson Hole Conference. So you get a speech, you know exactly the information before it comes out. Would you be able to make money given that information? I would say it's not clear. So in some sense, when you think about it, given this is a conundrum or given this problem that we face, how do you solve it? Okay, That gets into different approaches to, or styles of trading. And in one sense, you could sort of say that the trend follower said, I know I'm not going to be able to know everything about markets. So what I'm going to know very well is what is being signaled from prices in the current market. And we'll say that that signal is just the aggregated opinion of everyone else in the market. So yeah. I don't have to know all the facts. I just need to know what is the consensus or what is the signaling that's being given by others in the marketplace, okay? And then the second thing we sort of talked about, you know, this ignorance issue is common knowledge. So, well, I don't know what the common knowledge would be. I could listen to the talking heads, but if I'm a trend follower and I follow prices, the common knowledge is the price is what's already embedded in prices. That's the common knowledge. Then you say that this is all tied together with behavior because you say, I know that prices convey information or that's where information is embedded. I know that the weight of all of opinions is the common knowledge is embedded. And a third part is behavior. What is the behavior going to be? And a trend follower, in a sense, will say, I think behavior is, is that people are slow to react, that sometimes they underreact to news, sometimes they overreact. But because the reaction may not be immediate, 
The reaction may not always be rational. The reaction may be based on risk aversion, that there may be some opportunity for me to analyze prices, find trends, follow those trends, and then be able to exploit that. And in some sense, then I'm able to solve this known and unknown problems. I can have a plan in case I get punched in the face. And we'll finally sort of say from a diversification of ignorance, you'd say, it's not that I'm ignorant. I'm going to sort of say, I can still make mistakes. And I'm fully aware or cognizant of my ability to make mistakes or that probabilistically, I'm not always going to be right. So therefore, is is that diversification is not an issue of ignorance. It's an issue of my ability to properly understand and handicap my skill at being able to extract information from the market. If I have better skill, I'll have a more concentrated portfolio. If I have less skill, I might have less. But it's but it's actually you know based in my ability to measure my uh, skill as opposed to a defense against ignorance. It's funny when you talked about the the Donald Rumsfeld known unknowns, et cetera, et cetera. It, it kind of reminds me of one of the first things I think that Alex Grazman talked about on an old episode he did here on the podcast, or, or whether it was on another podcast, I heard him with, I can't remember now. But of course, he explained or he told the story about his initial meeting with Larry Hyde. I mean, he was there for a job interview, or maybe had just been been hired by Hyde back in the day. And he was looking for this kind of piece of magical insight to why trend following works. And I think Larry Hyde just said, well, it's knowing what you don't know. And he was kind of incredibly disappointed with that kind of reply, you know, not really able to understand the value of uh, of that, of those few words. So I thought that was quite, quite interesting that that's really been something that we as trend followers have known about, <laughs> so to speak, for, for decades and, and kind of a lot of value in in that. I mean, interesting stuff. We'll we'll see what happens and what comes out of it. And it is still interesting to me that this approach, which seems incredibly logical, most people would agree that they can't tell the future, and therefore following price makes a lot of sense, common sense. Yet it's still not widely adopted if you look at the, the bigger picture, so to speak. So we'll have to keep fighting the good fight here, Mark. And I don't really understand why that's the case. Now, that being said, is is that I'm I think that the we're it's good that everybody is not a trend follower. Of course. And you know, getting back to liquidity, it's interesting is is that trend followers are liquidity takers, not liquidity givers. And value investors in our value strategies are liquidity givers. And when you think about it, is is that so? If I'm a trend follower, I'm uh, I'm going to buy when markets are going higher, right? So so I'm I'm actually taking liquidity from the market marketplace. And uh, a value investor often will be a buyer when prices are selling, so they're sure. actually providing liquidity. And so, in mm-hmm. some sense, when we get back to this issue of liquidity, you really have to think about okay, different styles are actually changed liquidity mix in marketplace. So if everybody was a liquidity taker, 
that wouldn't be good for the markets or, or similarly is this is if everybody was a value player and their uh, liquidity provider was fine, but you need to provide liquidity to someone else who's, who's, who's doing the opposite side of the trade. Right, which of course, I've heard a lot of people talk about how we as an industry do provide liquidity to the hedgers, right? To the people who want right. to sell their grains, et cetera, et cetera, when prices go up and say, oh, that's a great price. And, and if it's, the beginning of a trend or whatever, there might be a lot of trend followers jumping into that at that point. So it kind of depends on how how people want to describe it. And maybe that's why trend followers are often held out as the culprit, so to speak. If there's a big move that people can't explain, they just say, oh yeah, it's the trend followers, the CTA is doing this. When you often, and maybe that tied, it tied into one of your other points that you mentioned, uh, how many trades make a good trading year. I mean, frankly, and I don't know this, if this is where you're going, but a really quiet year for a trend follower usually indicates that we're having a really good time because we don't have to make many changes to our, our, our portfolio. So often when there are big moves, we're not even in the markets. And, and Jerry and Moritz and I, we've often talked about it when some specific firms, we don't need to mention them here today, but uh, you know they're kind of known for coming out talking about how CTAs are changing their portfolios and pushing prices in one way or the other. And then when I check in with, you know, when I look at what we're doing on our side, when I check in with Jerry Moritz and, and, and so on and so forth, we're not doing any trades whatsoever. So it's it's kind of complete nonsense, really. I actually had a, uh, <laughs> this is a when I was back in the year, uh, John Henry, we were talking with a couple of clients, and, and and I was half joking with a, a client, but it was also serious. I said, "You're going to pay me most when I work least." And he said, well, "What do you mean?" I said, "Like, I said, if you call me up and I'm at a trading desk and we're at all our traders, and I said, can't really talk." Real busy, a lot going on, <laughs> and, and we're, whoa, you know, we're working really hard here. We're trading up a storm. Well, that means I'm probably getting out of all my positions. I'm reversing positions. I'm changing my positions. That's not good <laughs> if you're a trend right. follower. On the other hand, if you call me up and I said like, oh, just sitting here sipping my coffee, <laughs> just watching right. the screens, nothing going on here. This <laughs> is that you know what? What are you up to this weekend? It means is that I I've got my positions, they're working, they're in place, and I'm not doing anything. And this is that. So when I work least, I'm going to make the big, biggest incentive fees. And if I'm working the hardest, I probably am going to be underwater. I'm not going to make any incentive fees, and um, every dollar I'm earning on management fee is is, is being paid for because uh, I, I'm sort of have sweat on my brow. <laughs> and I think actually it's in one of uh, Michael Covell's earliest book where he described his first uh, visit to Dunn's offices, and he I think he describes it as coming like coming to an accountant's office. I mean, it's completely quiet and boring, nothing going on, and it's really true. I mean. You know that's how it is in our offices. It's it's incredibly quiet, very little going on. Of course, there's a few beeps and blips here and there in, in our trading room, but it's not how you see it on television. And 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 and, and of course, I think we've talked about this uh, over the years uh, that maybe one reason why trend following is such an interesting strategy for some people is because there is no excitement. It's kind of boring, laborious, and you just have to um, do a few trades uh, here and there, and no drama. I mean, which reminds me of this new uh, <laughs> advertisement for Switzerland. In fact, 
that Roger Federer yeah. did with Robert <laughs> De Niro called No Drama. What a great short yeah. ad. And um, but I and yeah. I thought that the perfect title <laughs> for trend following, No Drama. You're absolutely right. You could have the same type of uh, ad for trend following. And even when I said that we're working hard when things, it's different because even if we're working hard, it's because we have a plan. So going back to the Mike Tyson is, is, is that this is not sort of like all of a sudden is, is that something happens and, and now we're trying, you know, we're, we have to now figure out, well, what are we going to do next? What, what, are, uh, what action should we take? He's say, like, no, I, I've got my orders. Here's what we got to do. I want, I, you know, I'm going to have to, you know, you're going to have to work your orders to ensure that you'll be able to get close to what we think is fair price. And most trend followers and most, you know, systematic managers have a good idea of how to, how we measure the cost of execution. And so we can sort of say like, okay, how do I dole out my orders so I can minimize price impact and be able to have it and, and have as little disruption in the market itself? Because we're always worried about does our own activity feedback on prices and will that then impact my models? So if let's say that I'm a buyer and I just put in a big order without any thought or reason, I could push the price higher. And then that high price, you know, if it could be the high price of the day, could actually then feed back into my model and then have an impact on what potential trades I will do in the future because it prints a new high on that day. So, so the objective is first, how do I minimize market impact to get a fair price? Mm. And second, how do I minimize market disturbance so it won't influence my models in the future? But I think, you know, going back to the question about, you know, what are the number of trades that you have in any given year is, and this also ties to the diversification issue is this is that there's a, someone from Goldman Sachs at Tony Pascarelli. So he sort of had one of his quips that he said that good macro traders make about, uh, they have about three or four trades make up for 90% of their returns. And I think the same applies to trend followers. This is that even mm. though you're, you're trading at a lot of different markets and you're under the assumption that well, if I trade all these markets, I should be making money in all of them. Or even if, let's say that my uh, I have a certain you know win to loss ratio and uh, success ratio that you know out of all my trades, I should be making more than fifty percent of the markets I trade should be making uh, making money. And the answer is no. There's only going to be you know when you go back over the end of the year, you want to try to say I'm going to take a fair number of trades. I want to ensure that when any given trade, I minimize my losses and then I anticipate or I expect that the majority of my returns for the year are only going to be made in a few. And that's why I got to sort of hold on to those few trades as long as possible. Mm. And this is why exits are so important in trading, because if let's say that there's only three or four trades that are going to make or break my year, and that's no different from a you know this you know a lot of macro traders in general, discretionary or trend followers. Then you're going to say is that I have to make sure that I stay in those trades as long as possible because I never know which one are going to be the three or four winners. Because if I cut it short and the market goes down another twenty percent higher or more, then I really left a lot of money on the table. And in some sense, you could sort of say like, let's look at as of right of August right now. You could sort of say there's only a couple of trades that probably have been big winners or losers for people. First quarter would be 
rates going up, you know, sort of say sort of rate mm. curve trades. Second quarter is rates going down, you know, and sort of did you get that one right? And and were you uh the third trade would probably be the stock market or your equity exposure. Did you were you able to sort of get in on that trend and hold those trends? Maybe the fourth might be you know some of the energy trades that we've seen, and we'll sort of say that all the other trading it could it could still make you money. Different people have different emphasis, so that mix might be different. But we'll sort of say even if if I had to look at large diversified trend followers, I'd probably sort of say that there's just a couple of those trades that and the ones that I mentioned is probably you know, are driving a lot of the performance for the, for the year so far. I think a lot of investors sometimes say like, I can't believe I'm, I'm, I'm going to put all this money at risk for what might be three or four trades in a given year that'll ma- matter. They'd say like, that's been going on for decades and that's what you should expect. The question comes in that you want to ask if you're doing the due diligence or if you're talking to the managers is, tell me how you can ensure that you can extract as much as you can for those few trades, knowing full well that there's only going to be a few that are going to be wildly successful. So how do I cut my losses for the things that are just not working? And how do I ensure that I stay in those trades as long as possible for the three or four that are going to make or break the year? I think there's so many contradictions really in the minds of investors when they start digging into trend following that makes it hard for them to fully embrace. I think there are a lot of things that we do that is counterintuitive. I remember, Jerry, last week we talked about how actually trading small allows you to win big, which is, again, where you think, well, no, 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 I have to put like, you know, 75% of my portfolio in in one thing and that's going to make me a lot of money, right? Yeah, but actually that's not what we do. So, I think we could go on for quite a while in in terms of listing these. Before we wrap up today, I want to, in a few minutes, I want you to tee up what we might do next month, because I think that's going to be a little bit groundbreaking in terms of a topic that people may not have heard us talk about before. So I think that's going to be super, super interesting. But I do want to just touch on something that you maybe we can do that briefly, that you also mentioned that that I touched on a little bit, and I have no idea if you even heard Jeremy talk about this last week, but you wrote to me, ESG commodities and trend following. What were you you thinking about that? You know, I think that uh, we've had some clients uh, come back to us and ask us about, uh, well, can we do some ESG work? And and, and then we had a conversation and say, can you have an ESG commodity fund, or can you be an ESG trend following? And I sort of said, like, that's really an interesting question. And it's and it's interesting because we'll sort of say that some European banks, you know, if they look at their commodity swaps, they exclude certain commodities that they think might have a, a detrimental effect on some African uh countries so they 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 won't trade trade certain markets. And then you start to say that uh right now Probably about, uh, I saw a survey that said about a third of all global assets are now sort of uh, have some type of association or with ESG. So if you sort of said that you were going to trade commodity markets, what does it mean to be ESG friendly if I'm going to be long and short corn? What does it mean to be ESG friendly if I'm going to trade a commodity like oil or natural gas? 
trading uh, energy complex, would that be considered ESG friendly? And I think that there are still a lot of unknowns there. And I think that it's mm-hmm. something that you know we probably should come back to. But I think that uh, if you're trading just the commodity, so you're not uh, so, so you're not an energy company that could sort of say, well, I'm going to worry about my pollution or I'm going to worry about my global footprint for uh, carbon emissions. The issue, if you're just trading the actual commodity, mm-hmm. is that in itself ESG neutral? Or is there something that is 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 there inherent? Is there something inherent with trading a commodity in the form of a futures market that it could be related to ESG? Yeah, and and Jerry and I actually took the conversation a little bit further because we were also thinking about some of the things that's happening in in our markets right now, and that is uh, as as we've often discussed, there's a lot of people, a lot of uh, of our good friends in the market that is moving towards. Chinese commodities, and that, in my mind at least, even though I don't really want to make it a political issue, but in my mind, it opens certain questions. If you start also to look at, you know, the countries that these markets are in and what's happening and so on and so forth. So anyway, probably don't want really to go into it too deeply, but it's just something to be aware of. Now, let me run through a couple of performance numbers as where we are so far, and then I wouldn't mind if you would maybe tee up the t- overall topic uh, for next month or next time we're on in a few weeks, because I think that is incredibly relevant for everyone listening today, and it's something we haven't really discussed now in terms of performance. It is actually a pretty good start in August. Up all along, maybe except for the short-term traders, but the uh, beta 50 is up about half a percent, up almost 8% for the year. Sokjen CTA index up just a fraction, 17 bips, up 7% for the year. Trend index up 65 basis points as of yesterday, up uh, almost 9% for the year. And the short-term traders index is flat for the month, up one and a half for the year. As I mentioned, the trend barometer is kind of weak still. It's at 41 uh, by the at the close of last night. Of course, we know equities are doing well this month again. And bonds are giving back a little bit this month so far, 22 basis points. So I hope you know what I'm talking about when I say something new, exciting, fascinating that you've been working on. I think with Kaya, maybe, yep. uh, in fact. So tell me a little, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I was doing some work with Kaya you know, last year. I'll be uh, we've done some uh, some work and uh, research that we've presented. It'll be some of it will be presented at Journal of Alternative Investments. But what we did is we did a survey of investors and managers concerning due diligence. And so, you know, what are the important factors that you look at to determine your choice of managers that you, you know, that you pick in your portfolio? And surprisingly, is is that when you think about it. Most investors do not trade themselves. Most investors allocate their money to other managers to manage for them. So it's not so much, you know, what you think of the stock market. It's how you assess the managers you choose to think about the stock market. And so we did a survey because we think that given how important due diligence of manager uh, managers are, 
that there hasn't been enough research to say, well, what are the factors that really drive these decisions? Are they all quantitative? Are they qualitative? Uh, what's the mix? What are the important things that determine whether you will you know, not choose a manager? Just as important, what are you choose a manager? And I think we got some very fascinating results is the fact that, and I don't want to steal the thunder, but Surprisingly, is is, is that uh, while all of the research that's been done by mostly academics has looked at the quantitative side of due diligence, in reality, that most of the actual decisions are made on a qualitative measure. Most of the decisions people are sort of just deciding is, is is that okay. Does the philosophy make sense? Mm. Am I comfortable with the principles? It also, you find that operational due diligence is often the key to whether it's rejected. So you could be a great manager, but if you don't pass muster on the operation side, they won't choose you. It's sort of the business risk is more important than the investment risk that they may follow. And I think so. So we've got a, a lot of results. And what we did is we looked at uh, from the perspective of investors. And then we looked at the perspective from managers, and we found some very interesting results that the perceptions that managers have of the due diligence process is different than what the reality of that the investors have. And I think that that in itself would be good for all the managers to hear about. And the investors should also you know, be able to hear about what other people think are the key variables that drive the decisions of their peers in choosing managers. And uh, I think this is especially relevant for trend following when we said that there is confusion about uh, for quantitative managers of why, you know, you think that this should be very cut and dry. It should be very quantitative. And even that is, is, is difficult. And we'll sort of say that the due diligence for quantitative managers is actually considered very difficult because small nuances or small differences could make a big difference in the returns. And then people have a hard time distinguishing those small nuances across managers. It's an absolutely fascinating topic, something that I have wanted to do for a while. So I'm really excited for next time you're on, Mark. And we're lucky because we have lots of managers, lots of investors in our audience. So I think this will be a real treat. I think on that note, we're going to wrap up this week's conversation we hope that you've enjoyed it as i mentioned in the uh, beginning please head over to itunes and leave a rating and review because it is so important for the podcast it really helps us out next week i'm joined by richard brennan is back so that's going to be super fun different of course very educational i'm sure i'm sure he will have some interesting topics, trend-following hardcore topics up his sleeve that we're going to do our best to explore. And of course, if you have questions, please email them to info at toptradersandpluck.com and we'll do our best to get some answers for you from Mark and me. Thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. Until then, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. 
And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.